Um, how many of you have ever walked along the Charles River in Boston? We had a couple. Okay. So if you've walked on this path in the, along the Charles River in Boston, it was probably the, the section that is named after Dr. Paul Dudley White, who was President Eisenhower's cardiologist following this massive heart attack that he had while in office in 1955. But more importantly, Dr. White was the founder of preventive cardiology, which is something that's old hat to us, but he was one of the first to advocate that diet and exercise affects coronary artery disease. And I came across, uh, across a quote from him this week that resonated with my study you know, of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, particularly chapter one. He said this, he said, a doctor who cannot take a good history and a patient who cannot give one are in danger of giving and receiving bad treatment. Let me say it again. A doctor who cannot take a good history and a patient who cannot give one are in danger of giving and receiving bad treatment. Now what resonated is just how important it is to have understanding and clarity about, you know, to be on the same page about the background and let's say the foreground of a situation, of a reality. An apostle like Paul needs to be on the same page as those he's responsible to lead and care for, and they need to be on the same page as one another. And this is why he opens the letter so eager to, to visit Rome in person, to visit this church. It's toward this end of bringing them together that Paul shapes his whole message to them. Prior to this letter, uh, which it's not obvious as we read this, but you have to look at history, the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, and it ended up being about five years. And so that included all the Jewish Christians, but they, as Paul is writing, they've since returned to Rome, and their church has obviously changed quite a bit under the leadership and the influence of a, an almost entirely Gentile Christian uh, congregation. So getting on the, the same page was going to be challenging. So you have Paul, who is a Jew uniquely called to non-Jews for the sake of the gospel. He's faced with helping them navigate this. He's calling, in his words, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints he's, to commonality. He's helping them understand the comprehensive reach of the gospel and their mutual need for it. Doesn't matter who they are, whether they're Jews, Greeks, or barbarians. And this call to clarity, this call to mutual understanding about the scope of sin, its reach, right? And, and the gospel's reach, it applies to all believers. Doesn't matter who you are. It's fundamental, which means the history and the reality that he's describing for them, are our background and our foreground too. It's our story. We need to be able to get on the same page. But before we attempt to do that and dive into the details of the 10 verses that we have today, I think we need to explore why it can actually be difficult for us as late moderns to embrace this kind of thinking. Arguably, there's never been a time in history when people in the West, at least, uh, including Christians, have been less capable of or less inclined to embrace scripture on its own terms and so let's just talk about some of those challenges some of those reasons all right and there are probably more than this but i think not less first in the last couple centuries which you probably know rationalism has trained us to really dissect scripture like a textbook identifying theological content or building arguments from scripture or arguments against scripture 
inspecting ideas like the wrath of God or sin or justification or predestination and so on through our modern Western lens. And in the process, we can overlook, we can trivialize not only the occasion and the purpose of this letter, but you know, actually the historical and relational and even rhetorical aspects as he's telling the story that belong to a, a much larger narrative, right? We can just pluck it out for theology or for explanation or even dismissal without seeing how Paul is locating them in the larger story and us. You know, it's like when we think this way, it's like remembering last year's beach trip in terms of just the number of miles you drove or, you know, the temperature of the ocean or how many, you know, wings and eagles stores that you noticed along the Grand Strand of South Carolina. These, these are not the core of your trip, right? This is not what it was to experience them. In efforts like these, what we do is we hand the sweeping story of Scripture, our little box, and we say, here, climb inside. And then I'll carry you around on my terms. But there's a second box. Highly influential uh, 20th century French philosopher Paul Ricoeur, he des- described our contemporary approach to interpretation, like interpreting anything, particularly text, but also interpreting history or interpreting people, you name it. He, he, um, you know, he described this in terms of three profound cultural influences upon us. You probably know these names. He said that we're the unwitting children of Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Friedrich Nietzsche, whom he called the masters of suspicion. Suspicion. The idea that Marx and Freud and Nietzsche had in common is that everything and everyone is probably hiding something. There is an agenda underlying this. There's an ulterior motive. So we have a hermeneutic or a mode of interpretation that is suspicious. But here's the irony. You know, we're going to be the ones doing this, right? This carrying the suspicion. But if I'm suspicious of something, or you are, how can I know that my suspicions aren't suspicious? They are. Because I can't. Even still, we... All of us, it's in the water in some sense. We functionally believe that we're the best interpreters and arbiters of reality and truth. Not only because we like ourselves a lot, but we also are perched in our place in history as though it's the most important and clear time in all of history. So faced with ancient truths that don't fit in the boxes of our expectations or our desires or a culture that's blown by the wind, we lean heavily on that suspicion, that external suspicion. And if Scripture doesn't make sense, we assume Scripture's the problem, not us. Or at the very least, we're suspicious of the people who've interpreted even the stickier parts of of Scripture virtually the same way for 2,000 years. Meanwhile, what do we do? We forego the self-suspicion. We're not asking hard questions of ourselves. Why? And this is sort of the third compounding problem. It feels bad to do that. We don't like to be self-critical. It's a third compounding problem beyond rationalism, beyond suspicion. We live in an increasingly therapeutic age, particularly in the West, where what Charles Taylor, who was also a philosopher, he called, he called it expressive individualism that has kind of codified our self-protection 
against ideas that we don't, you know, that are different, they're challenging, they're hard, they don't fit. We consider them outmoded, you know, or regressive, or they're hostile. It doesn't matter if they're true or wise. As the theologian Carl Truman points out in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, we've psychologized the self, maybe almost entirely which social psychologists trace to sort of the way we began, many influences in, our, in culture began um, it, you know, during the Romantic period of the early 19th century. Now, Truman is not suggesting that uh, psychology is negative. Far from it. But that our inner individual worlds, with our own sort of autonomous and very brittle and self-protective suspicions, it's, it hasn't, it's having an effect. It's displacing something else more holistic, an integrated and communal way of making sense of and of dealing with the real complexity of the real world, of making sense of ourselves. Fragmented, self-protected. You probably heard someone say, maybe they said it to you and I'm sure you didn't like it and I would understand that. They said, feelings aren't facts. But I prefer to say it this way, feelings aren't foundations. As we've unhitched, so to speak, from the wisdom of history and of tradition, which is a bad word for a lot of people, for the sake of the modern self, because we've hitched up to something else, make no mistake about it, what happens? We've, we've found ourselves just under a tidal wave of research and studies that are telling us and that our collective mental and emotional and social health, it is a tangled web of crises. It ain't working. And it's eating our young. With that in mind, let's consider Romans 1 for a few minutes. The setup of this sweeping letter calls the reader to be gut-level honest about the world and its history. Paul invites his Roman readers and he invites us on this third Sunday of Lent, which is important, to an honest self-suspicion, which is, here's a new word, also from Paul Ricoeur, implotted. It fits into a larger story. It describes how you know, honesty about sin's sway on history and on each of us, it belongs to a larger plot line of history and of experience. Sin is not the first nor the final word. Thank God. Paul makes this clear. But it's a true and an imp important word for us. If we're going to hope for the world's healing, for our healing, Paul frames this reality, this, this reality of sin, this reality of the world's plight, in terms of two revelations. God's revealed righteousness, he talks about, in Jesus. It begins with the good news. God's revealed righteousness and his revealed wrath in history. His passionate and just response to the wrecking of the good, of creation of shalom, of order, through all manner of idolatry, whether or not we realize that's what it is. Now, wrath is not a word that sits very well with us, but we have to sit with it. It's also implotted. To understand God's wrath for sin requires that we look at the whole story. We don't have time to do all of that today, but we get echoes of that even in all of our readings. Truth is, we can be as terrible as we really are, and God can be as angry at idolatry as He really is, 
when we understand that these realities, those two things, our sin, God's holiness, are held together, they are held together in a tension between God's redeeming love for humans on the one hand and his unwavering commitment to justice on the other. He is committed to the liberation of the whole cosmos from the destruction of idolatry. It's not a world worth having. Does that make sense? I told you it was going to be dense. Are you with me? All right. No one is. That's okay. I'm going to keep going. So, point being, if we can accept this implotted reality, like the place of divine justice in the larger story that Paul is telling, you know, if we can't accept that, let's just say, then we actually are the ones left to explain why in all of our progress, in all of our counterfeit wisdom, we still haven't civilized and rescued our world. We haven't figured it out. Why do we keep finding new ways to disfigure humanity, to systematize injustice, and to compound our anxiety? The easy answer we pull on is this one. This one's popular, especially today. Well, it's their fault, not mine. It's their fault. It's only, if, you know, if only those people, if you people will just get a clue, straighten up, and fly right, things will be better. This is exactly why Paul begins this letter to this divided church as he does. You can't point the finger. Now, first he gives the good news, right? That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he'll spend 16 chapters reinforcing that idea. But he follows with this kind of creative retelling of the drama of Genesis 3 through 11. From the jump, humanity itself has been trapped in these dizzying cycles of idolatry, relentlessly determined to deny God and suppress the truth and all of its demands. We don't like it. And verse 18 tells us that as a result of this, his wrath is also being revealed. And I think this is you know, it's nuanced, but I think this is pretty clear in here. His wrath is being revealed in the way the world is playing out and will play out so long as people continue on this alienating path. And the only way out of it is the righteousness of Christ, which I'll return to. The Creator, imagine this, actually cares about the plight of creation. He's passionately and righteously angry about the way it's going. So then in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, it's just a little bit of extra background, there is clear evidence that creation has divine purpose and meaning, but that is getting denied over and over. There's divine power and genius behind the cosmos and the wonder that it inspires. To deny it is either just willful or it's just systemic ignorance. It's just what we do. It's stitched into the fabric of society. And now, here we are with all our instrumentation. You know, I mean, good Lord, we've got a telescope that can see bazillion miles into space, right? All of that instrumentation for study and insight and cosmologists are continually just bowled over by the precision and the order of the universe. And yet there's an insistence to deny God. Same stuff, different day. And Paul's on to it. We're accountable for this, Paul says. And then in verses 21 and 22, he explains that this denial and this dishonor, this alienation and this idolatry, they aren't isolated or static. They have a compounding effect. 
They beget, they be, they're like a sickness that goes on and affects, almost like a genetic disorder. The darkness you know, gets darker the further we wander from the light. And all the while we think we're growing wiser, and there's the trap. Prioritizing the imminent, what's here, over the transcendent. The mortal over the immortal. He says people seem determined, always have to worship anything but the Creator. We do this in really ham-handed ways. We do it in really sophisticated ways. But, you know, the delusion of idolatry just spreads generationally and culturally. And yes, mysteriously. How did we get here? The unnatural becomes natural. Down becomes up. So with Roman culture in view, Paul gives special attention. And we, we, we start to get into it in the reading today. He gives special attention in the verses following you know, the, the, the reading today to explain that humanity's idolatrous worship of ourselves has an interesting effect. It works itself out in the disordering of our most basic desires, including our sexuality. It's clear in the scope of his argument that Paul is saying that sin's deceit actually burrows deeper into us than we may, be, may realize or even be able to explain. It's all there. And we can, we, we can build our constructs and our explanations for it, but this is the one we've been living with for two millennia. The corruption of sexual desire, though, isn't, it, it's only one of the many symptoms of this compounding problem. Paul calls... Uh, this debasement, this is later in, in verse 28 and following. Um, this debasement leads to society becoming filled with every kind of wickedness, he says. Evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They dis disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And he says in verse 32, they do these things and approve of others who do them. Culture. Now, there was a Roman historian named Livy uh, who died actually while Jesus was probably an adolescent, maybe a young teenager. Um, and this is what he said about his own countrymen. He said, <clears throat> of late years, wealth has made us greedy. Self-indulgence has brought us through every form of sensual excess to be, if I may so put it, in love with death, which is a kind of nihilism, right? Like meaninglessness. So let's look back, shifting back from kind of we moved forward beyond the reading today. Let's go back to our final two verses of our reading. Beginning in verse 24, Paul makes it clear that this endless unfurling of sin, so to speak, it has happened because God allowed it. God gave them up says to impurity and dishonor in short he allowed humanity to live their lie with all its effects sin permeating to the bone and into the basement punishing the whole world with its ways in patterns over generations and over lifetimes people come to so closely identify with their sin that the thought of it being sin seems absurd whether it's materialism or bigotry pride of status violence parading as patriotism or entertainment disordered sexuality or something else and alienated from god when we make good things ultimate they become idols that burrow into the recesses of our hearts this is what he's saying and we need rescue. 
not just rehab. It seems that Paul's point is this. The wrath of God is actually revealed, at least in part, by allowing humanity to have the world on our own miserable terms. This is what happens when God, in His righteous, passionate anger, He no longer holds back the dam, or at least part of it. And getting what we want means getting the world we want. Getting what I want means it's collective in many ways. The German philosopher, uh, who's also playwright uh, Friedrich Schiller, he captured this idea, and it was just really succinct. He said, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. Look at it. And though Paul's fellow Jews might think they are in a position to judge, just by the way, verses 2 and 3, he makes sure they understand that their story of idolatry is out on record. And he dismantles any argument that being the children of Abraham has to do with anything other than faith. No one is righteous. Not one, he'll say, invoking Isaiah 53. No one. So, we sit with that. What's the answer? What's our hope? What's our hope? Here's where he takes it. He returns to where he started. It's like a good news sandwich, not a bad news sandwich. You've heard of the bad news sandwich? This is a good news sandwich. He says in chapter 3, verse 21, beginning of 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been seen, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an offering by His blood to be received by faith. And this was, he says, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in other words, not that he didn't feel that wrath for sin, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over many former sins. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time. This is so important. So that he might be just, have the right orientation to the wrong things, and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how Paul reconciles God's love for humanity on the one hand and his wrath for sin. He is both just and the justifier. He does it all for us. The Son of God takes on flesh. He enters this broken history as it really is and offers his own sinless self in a radical confrontation with sin. And now listen to me closely when I say this. We can get really reductive and misled. The cross isn't about a wrathful father punishing his son for our sins. We need the whole picture. And you, you hear this. Listen to when we pray the prayers, when Hannah prays the prayers at the table today, you will hear the gospel for what it's saying the cross really is. We need the whole picture. Jesus, as both priest and sacrifice, he offers himself within the background of Israel's sacrificial system or experience. It's not just a random idea. God's mad and he pours out his, his wrath on Jesus. Like the lamb who was offered by the high priest every year for Israel's collective sin, all of them, for everybody, Jesus becomes the lamb who takes away the sin of the whole world. You and me. The lamb who justifies the unjust. The lamb was not brutalized in that ceremony. It was not brutalized in anger for Israel's sin. No, the lamb was God's idea. 
It's God's provision as a means to, as a mediation of a divine forgiveness and healing. This Roman torture device, because that's what it is, to where we send our problems and our difficulties and all the devil's works every Sunday, that Roman torture device was where the tide of Romans won. All its awfulness finally reaches its height, where sin reaches its fullness, and the wrath of God reaches its fullness. What happens? They not only you know, deny or dishonor God, they try to kill Him, and they do. They demonstrate how deeply sin had permeated culture, government, and religion. It's all there. Jesus allows sin at every level to do its worst. Its worst. It all mounts up in the cross, and He takes it away. And with it, He takes away the wrath of God for it. Breaking this cycle of alienation and rebellion. And though we feel at the effects of the world as it is every day, the weight of the world under the sway of sin, though, friends, and the wrath of God for that sin, it is no longer upon us. A future fashioned by idolatry and the denial of truth, that's not our future. Because we believe Christ has become our righteousness. And we stand justified before a holy God, willing to listen to, willing to tell the honest story of a world gone wrong through the kinds of lives we live in repentance and worship. We're on the same page. We can't fix ourselves or our world. And we don't have to. Do you know that? This is the work of the cross. This is the, the power of the resurrection. There is a creator who loves all that he has made, who loves you and me, and who remains passionately committed to redeeming this world, you and me. This Lenten season, as we continue to open our minds, we open our hearts wider to the truth about us, the truth about our world. As we open our hands to the bread of life in repentance and thanksgiving, the Lord's just passionate and His redeeming and rescuing and forgiving and healing and strengthening and unifying love is what we can hope for. It's ours. No matter the part we've played in the plight of the world, we have Christ. If we've lost hope in the world as it is, it's understandable. The world is a heavy, it's a heartbreaking, it's an idolatrous place. It's the place that broke the body and spilled the blood of Jesus. But by His death and resurrection, we are no longer alienated. We're no longer trapped by our idols. And we're not trapped by the idols of our culture. So even in the middle of a season where we're paying attention more to our patterns of sin and even our idolatry, because I have it, you have it, we're being drawn to this good news. Through that repentance and out the other side, and so may we, like Paul, this is my prayer for us, Lord, may we, like Paul, be unashamed of this freedom that we have. The power of the gospel to save us and to save our world. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.